Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Carla Freeman. She's Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies and Associated Faculty in Anthropology and Latin American and Caribbean Studies at Emory University. She's also currently Senior Associate Dean of Faculty there. I really liked her first book, High Tech and High Heels in the Global Economy, Women, Work, and Pink Collar Identities in the Caribbean, which was published back in 2000. Today, I'll be speaking with her about her new book entitled Entrepreneurial Selves, Neoliberal Respectability and the Making of a Caribbean Middle Class, published by Duke University Press in 2014. This book makes an important intervention in literature on neoliberal economies in thinking about the importance of affect, intimacy, emotion, and care in the lives of female entrepreneurs in Barbados. It's a wonderful book, and I'm really pleased she's going to be talking to me today. I want to start just by talking about Barbados, actually. You've been working on Barbados for many years, and I'm wondering what it is that originally drew you to the island, and then after that, what made it suited for this particular study? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure how far back to go, but uh, the long and the short of it is I went to graduate school thinking I was going to do research in East Africa on gender socialization through language. And while I was in graduate school, I took a class. This was in the mid-1980s on what was then referred to as women in development studies, probably an expression we wouldn't use today. Uh, And I read the work of Maria Patricia Fernandez Kelly, who had an early ethnography from the early 80s on the U.S.-Mexican border and the transformation labor and in particular the incorporation of women as work as factory workers in the development of offshore industries garments and electronics and um, at that very time when I was a grad student I was working as a temporary secretary in banks and insurance companies doing data entry and entry of legal briefs and um, work for insurance companies And I got wind of the fact that um, a number of U.S. corporations were exploring the idea of, um, in a sense, fracturing the labor process, even in white-collar services, modeling themselves on the way in which we outsourced manufacturing work to Mexico and East Asia, and were experimenting in doing so in the Caribbean. And uh, so as a kind of dutiful graduate student, I just started putting some queries out there. And I was, in fact, flying to an anthropology meeting, the AAA, meetings of the AAA in Phoenix, Arizona. And I read in the in-flight magazine on the airplane a, a full-page ad that said, do your data entry in Barbados. And it gave all of the same rationales for offshoring um, back office work for U.S. corporations that were exactly the same as what I understood to be the rationales for sending garment production to Mexico, for example. And um, But in addition to the promise of cheap labor, a number of the things that they were promising included things like uh, the fact that this was a very um, kind of peaceful and orderly society with uh, a, a labor force that is ex- extraordinarily well educated and with a 99% literacy rate and was English speaking. And so I, 
I got really curious and I made a couple of phone calls as though I was a potential client um, and began to investigate the transformation of this work in part because I was concerned about the fact that uh, a number of the offices that I was working in as a graduate student were filled with women, just like the maquiladoras on the Mexican border. And they were women who were either in retirement or women who were juggling childcare or women who were caring for elderly parents and availing themselves of flexible um, but reasonably well-paying jobs. And it occurred to me that the more uh, possible the outsourcing of that kind of work might be that it was going to have ramifications for labor forces like this, uh, female labor forces in the U.S. And I was also very curious about how that outsourcing would go to the Caribbean, which is a part of the world that's never been described or understood to be a locus for the so-called docile, submissive, feminine labor forces that Mexico and the Philippines and Singapore and other East Asian countries were um, were known for. Not that I'm saying that they did, in fact, offer those labor forces, but that's how industry, in a sense, uh, was was drawn to those parts of the world be, with the promise of low low wage, but also very compliant and non-union labor forces. And um, the more I began to learn about the Caribbean, I thought, gee, if I know anything about the Caribbean, it's that it's a part of the world that's known for kind of strong womanhood. And so I wonder how this is all going to work out. And that's why I ended up investigating Barbados in particular, because Barbados and Jamaica were the two countries that were understood or as kind of pilot locations for the outsourcing of that new experimentation with white collar back office work. That's a really fascinating entry into uh, into the story, and actually that puts together the pieces for that first book. Really, that book makes a lot more sense to me now. So, so, and then you stayed in Barbados for this particular study because you started, did you start to notice changes in the, in the workforce? I did. I did. I think, um, there were many of the seeds for this new book that were sown in my first book. Uh, one of them was that, uh, the, the economy started to take a dramatic downturn. And so, um, some of the companies began closing. Some of the some of the foreign uh, companies began closing, and so women were either facing job insecurity. Uh, many of the women were also feeling somewhat restless with their jobs and pursuing new um, entrepreneurial kinds of enterprises, and that kind of led me to explore what they were working on. And I was also at a more general theoretical level in that first book, very much concerned with the meanings of uh, the gender of class, how femininity inflects um, understandings about social class in very particular ways. And so in that first book, I, I, I sort of developed the concept of, of the pink collar labor force in the Barbadian context in ways that try to grapple with why women in particular were uh, drawn to this industry, not just why the corporations were trying to incorporate them, but why women were drawn to what looked to be white-collar jobs and how they, in a sense, gave 
particular kinds of meaning to what otherwise might be understood as blue collar work, very repetitive factory work. And the more I tried exploring in the literature, you know, any background on the Barbadian middle class, ideologies about the middle class, uh, as well as ethnographic accounts of middle classes, there was almost nothing in the existing literature. And so I, I became fascinated with what I describe in the new book as a series of intersecting ambivalences, if you will, uh, among anthropologists to studying middle classes, uh, Caribbean scholars um, and scholars of the Caribbean in attending to middle classes as, as worthy subjects of study and of feminist scholarship and its particular um, ambivalence about the middle class as uh, a, a legitimate subject. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting intervention, and it was actually my next question. Um, oh. But before we get into the, the details of the book, I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about a couple of more things in, with regards to the way you framed it. Sure. So in addition to this intervention about the middle class, which I think is really interesting and important, um, you look at neoli- neoliberalism through affect and emotion and the performance of self. And those are two things that, as far as I know, aren't often put together mm-hmm. in the same kind of analytical frame. And I'm wondering why, how you came to that um, formulation and why that was the most compelling approach for you to study this particular moment. I think I think I've always been fascinated by and challenged by um, the gap that I've I have always sensed between kind of traditional political economies or or political economic studies, political economic analyses rooted primarily in Marx, for example, and that was my early training with analyses of the confluence between culture, ideology, subjectivity. And I think when, um, when looking at neoliberalism, there is the impetus on the one hand, and I think I found this in, in relation to my first book too, in, in terms of just the emerging literature at that time uh, about this newfangled thing we were calling globalization then, something that we know so much about now, but that was relatively new at that time. Similarly, in, in both spheres of scholarship, whether talking about globalization as a general phenomenon or neoliberalism as a very particular uh, way of, of analyzing the role of the market uh, and its inflection in um, nation states, regions, uh, and communities, that I have always felt this profound gap in, in analyses that highlight structures, economic structures, and analyses that turn themselves toward the nuances of subjectivity and how people come to understand their own experience. And so for me, what emerged in the entrepreneurial study was, I mean, this began as a study of entrepreneurs. I wanted to understand you know, what in the context of Barbados was happening when the traditional industries of sugar, tourism, manufacturing were in decline or in precarious straits? And what did it mean in this society for people to embrace entrepreneurship 
as a mechanism of economic upward, upward mobility or middle class possibility. That's, that's what I began with. And I thought it was going to be a kind of conventional study of economic development and the emergence of, of entrepreneurship as a, as a new path in a society that otherwise had revered the professions and revered the civil service as the more viable path of upward mobility or the more reputable path of, of upward mobility. Uh, and what I found was that these businesses, the sort of impetus to become self-employed, to, to uh, mount a new enterprise, became not just or was envisioned not just as a means by which to generate livelihood, to make money and, and survive or more than survive, but was very much understood as a, a vehicle for self-expression. And um, I often say this to students, sometimes when, when you embark on a new ethnographic project, uh, some, some facets of the study, some, some lines of inquiry emerge from interviews and participant observation that become distracting and, you know, almost like a fly around your head and you try to swat it away and it's intriguing, but it's also distracting and this happened to me in, in the cases of both of these long-term ethnographic projects where I found this emphasis on affect, on the, the emotional qualities that were demanded in um, generating business, but also desired in many other facets of life. Um, they kept that, that, those elements kept coming up in my interviews and I kept thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting, but that's really beside the subject, and I would try to veer interviews or conversations toward the business at hand, and what were the challenges involved, and what were the opportunities that presented themselves, and how did people's families respond, and how difficult was it getting loans, and all of those nuts and bolts and practical elements. And then finally, at a certain point, I started realizing that what seemed like a distraction was actually a critical element of the main plot, and and that's where I began kind of taking more seriously and turning more deliberate attention to these questions about affect and and the manner by which affect and in particular affective labor became a critical element of many of the businesses that I was looking at and many of the entrepreneurial um, pursuits that, that these aspirational middle-class folks were drawn to and and the way in which affective labor was something that was both embraced and a mark of pride and pleasure among many of these individuals and also represented a sphere of, um, well, a, a, a dimension of labor that was burdensome and um, depleting and sometimes exhausting. Yeah, and what's what's so wonderful about the book is that by the end you – demonstrate that the two are completely entangled with one another. It's not that you're just looking at them together. It's that they actually depend on one another in these really interesting ways. Right. Um, so, and in addition to that, the other thing that happens in the book that's a kind of overarching thing is that you invoke Trouillot and his observation that it's really important to look at what he calls the particulars hidden in the sameness, mm-hmm. right? So this isn't just another story about globalization and the monolithic spread of liberalism, but it's something that's very particular. And you do it through these notions of respectability and reputation, which have been part of 
sort of Caribbean historiographies for a long time. Um, And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you you came to to work those in as part of your analysis as well. Yeah, that's also been a kind of um, vexing dimension of of all of this scholarship in the sense that um, on the one hand, and, and I, I, I use TRIO in, in all of this work, uh, that observation in particular, because the Caribbean does represent, on the one hand, this incredibly rich site in which uh, cultures in contact produce all kinds of fascinating, sometimes familiar-looking, but very distinctive elements and expressions. And... Uh, so I, I feel whenever I present any uh, papers or, or presentations on this work, I, it's always important to say, whether it's, it's in, in Europe or in the U.S. in particular, that many of the themes that I'm highlighting and, and describing as distinctive and radically new and, and kind of pathbreaking sound so familiar to a North American or a European ear that we could easily mistake them for being exactly the same thing. And Trio reminds us that even what looks to be very reminiscent and, and, uh, in a certain sense, repetitious or potentially, um, derivative, uh, may have different roots, or even if they share the same roots, may have very different meanings given the particulars of Caribbean history and culture. And so uh, much of what I describe in Entrepreneurial Cells, I think, bears that stripe where it sounds so familiar. I talk about the rise of therapeutic traditions and yoga and massage and working out and the body as a site of labor and of... um, cultivation. And and that's almost hackneyed in the U.S. context. But when that travels to the Caribbean, its meanings become very distinctive. And I use the reputation respectability paradigm, which was first articulated by Peter Wilson in the late 60s and early 70s, in ways that I find to be very important and powerful in the sense that they help us a, recognize that this is a paradigm that emerges out of the region and one in which, uh, in a certain sense, demonstrates the dynamism of neoliberalism. And, and by that, I mean that this concept of reputation, which Wilson described as evidence of Caribbean-specific New World traditions in which... Um, Cultures of communitas, of sharing, of, of collaboration, of display and performance, of masculinity, and most importantly, as opposition to the kind of dominant capitalist, hierarchical, colonially inspired culture and tradition of respectability could be countered and opposed and challenged and more creatively articulated. That's kind of what Wilson had in mind with his model. Uh, what I'm trying to get at in Entrepreneurial Selves is to demonstrate that what Wilson understood to be oppositional, this thing called reputation, which would have been, you know, the kind of wily, um, creative, um, 
let's see, um, economically flexible and adventurous spirit of, of Caribbean culture, which one might read to be the very imprimatur of, of entrepreneurship, of entrepreneurialism, can also be not just oppositional to capitalism, but in the contemporary context, become amenable to the very tools, in fact, be emblematic of the very tools of neoliberalism and fit hand in glove with a neoliberal market. Uh, and in a certain sense, that's the core of, of my argument. You argue that there are really porous boundaries between work and life. Um, and you use, you talk about three sort of ways that you organize the book, which is marriage, family, and self. And I was wondering if we can maybe take those one at a time and talk about how you see them as transformed, but also integral to the project of making entrepreneurial selves. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about the book is that um, each of the sides kind of feeds on the other. So, for example, in with regards to marriage, um, you point out that the that one thing that happens in marriage in this kind of neoliberal context is there are much higher expectations about emotional intimacy, sort of rather than mere mere partnership. And um, one of the questions I have is, isn't that uh, a really risky thing to do? But then the other question that I have is um, about the men, right? Because if there's all these heightened expectations about emotional intimacy um, for the partnership, how do the men come to this? Do they come to this on their own or do they come to this as part of this whole entrepreneurial structure of feeling? Uh, how did that work? Uh, those are big questions. Um, <laughs> one, I guess, uh, at, at a, at a fir- as a first pass uh, to, to those questions, I would say, firstly, um, again, this is relating back to Trio, part of what's important to understand about Barbados is that marriage is not the normative practice. It's the normative ideal. And so as a society, marriage is upheld as uh, a, a, um, a highly valued um, uh, and highly esteemed institution. But it's not one that is actually enacted at a practical level by a majority of people. Um, so what, one of the things that was su- surprising about this study, uh, and, and it was a discovery made early on in the project, was that in contrast to the society at large, where uh, a minority of the, of the adult population are married or have even been married, uh, among the entrepreneurs that I was studying, the vast majority of them were married. And so that was really fascinating. And it led me to wonder, you know, is this, is this because I'm studying the middle class? Is, is marriage the, the, the norm in practice among the middle classes and, and just ideologically um, normative among the society at large? Uh, or is something going on here? And I think I, I'm still kind of puzzling over that question, truthfully, whether, whether the higher rate of marriage was specifically to do with the entrepreneurialism of these, of, of women and men, right? That certain, they were taking certain risks in some domains of life by being entrepreneurs and therefore they were counterbalancing that risk by being, um, more staid, more conservative, more stable and respectable, if, if you will, um, in the realm of marriage. That's one thesis. 
Um, I'm not entirely sure, but there was this higher confluence between the entrepreneurs and the institution of marriage. Um, the Now, marriage as an institution uh, in, in Barbados and probably most places doesn't necessarily entail intimacy. And this is where, you know, this kind of emphasis on the affective was kind of surprising and interesting to me. It was in the context of talking about marriage among both the men and women entrepreneurs, but especially the women, that a, a, a really remarkable um, kind of preoccupation and desire to talk about intimacy as a critical dimension of the kind of relationship and the kind of marriage that that these folks were trying to cultivate, that they longed for. And it was as much a discussion about feeling and about relating feelings in an intimate way as it was about the institution of marriage per se. That's what these people were describing a tremendous desire for. In fact, the, the new research that I'm now working on is specifically about this. It's about, about romantic love, and, um, but I won't go off on that tangent. Um, uh, so, so the emphasis on intimacy in a certain sense became intriguing to me because it also very clearly then represented yet another sphere of work, right? People started using this language that, again, is familiar to us in the United States where, you know, we're familiar with this discourse where you have to work on the self, you have to work on a relationship, you have to work on your marriage, um, and uh, you have to work on being a good parent, those, those three spheres that you mentioned, marriage, family, and selfhood, that all of those become a sphere that requires deliberate, conscious uh, self-reflection and cultivation, labor, you know, um, tending. Uh, and, and in many ways, um, I may be repeating myself here, but in many ways, there was this very neat fit between the kind of labor that was required to do um, to, to cultivate the self, to cultivate the kind of intimate relationship and uh, go on things like date nights and um, take time to hear about uh, one's partner's day or share your day and not just the trials and tribulations of, of the workplace, but other dreams and goals and aspirations um, to share things that historically have not been front and center, even of the institution of marriage. Um, so, the literature is is what, when one talks about marriage in the in most of the literature of of Barbadian life and and more broadly in the Afro Caribbean, uh, a lot of the emphasis is about support and in particular economic support. Uh, what you know, what a partner offers in the way of um, maintaining a household, maintaining a livelihood, supporting children. Those are the key ingredients. And so to kind of push beyond those contours into the realm of support uh, and a, a kind of lexicon that was not just about economy in a financial sense, but economy in an emotional sense of offering tools and resources for comfort and ease and um, uh a sense of being soothed that came up often in these interviews. And, and I have to say it was, it was alarming to me having spent much of the last 20 years 
um, back and forth on this small island, I had never before heard people talk about emotional life and want to give voice to emotions and, you know, and use this word intimacy. It was just not formerly on people's lips in the same way. And, and it gave me clues to the fact that something new is going on. It's so interesting because it's almost as if this kind of neoliberal entrepreneurial self has had to examine its interior sort of interiority to become the, the you know, the, the kind of entrepreneur that is successful in that has accompanied this sort of new demand for intimacy is so paradoxical, but it, it makes this really interesting kind of sense, right? Just increasing and increasing and increasing. And it's not zero sum. It's just more and more and more something right. like that. And it's, I mean, people, other people have talked about this that in a, in a certain sense, it, it generates a kind of hyper, if, if you think about the demand side of this, if you think about the impetus to generate more and more and more, then it has the, 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 smell of hyper exploitation, right? It, it seems like, you know, it'll never be enough. What makes it complicated is that it also at one and the same time bears the, the marks of, or, or has the quality of tremendous pleasure. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that it, it's, it's the simultaneity of those dimensions of both the stresses and strains and the burden of all of this demand but also the seeking out and the deeply pleasurable dimensions, even of the longing, even if even even when these qualities, these affects, these intimate um, elements that so many of these women in particular are in search of, even when they're not realized, there is a kind of pleasure in the longing, in the acknowledgement of this desire. So I, I guess I, I want to try to keep those hold in balance those those dimensions that that you know may seem very oppositional but i think that they they're part of a piece yeah and i have a i have a question for you about that but i'm going to hold it to the end okay. um, i want to talk about the other half of this kind of heightened expectation for marriage which is that often those don't work out and mm-hmm. you get a lot of divorces as well. And then um, you talk about this kind of reemergence of matrifocality, the reemergence of the sort of um, female centered household or mm-hmm. however you want to call it. And, and, and in fact, it's upward mobility because that's mm-hmm. always been imagined as a kind of lower class thing. Yeah. Um, and so it, I'm wondering if that's a kind of almost a redefinition of whiteness that is now allowing for, things that were always thought of as, as not, um, not something that middle classes did? I think it is. I, I mean, firstly, um, <laughs> this is one of the, the benefits or, or costs of very, very long-term ethnography uh, is that, you know, I first began noting the rise of marriages and thinking that was such an extraordinary element to the story that needed to be told because uh, there's very, very little written about marriage uh, in, as, as an enacted practice. There's a, there's a lot about the kind of ideological reverence about marriage as, as the pinnacle of respectability, but there's very little uh, ethnographically or even, uh, even in the literature, even in the fictional literature, which I often find myself going to more and more because I think it's richer in the affective sphere than has been the history or the ethnography of the region. 
there's very little written about the institution of marriage. The story that needed to be told was, oh my gosh, look, more and more people are getting married. What's that all about? And I, you know, I, I took pictures of people getting married and, and their wedding parties. And again, the tradition uh, once was that First of all, marriage was expensive and in order to, you know, uh, and, and the big wedding was kind of an important element of that. You wanted to invite everybody to this and you wanted to have a big wedding party. And so couples would save up over a long period of time and would actually produce their children long before getting married. And then their children were part of the wedding party. It was kind of the, the crux of the relationship and not the beginnings of it, uh, often, you know, following serial relationships so I thought the story that was needing to be told as part of the entrepreneurial picture was that of the rise of marriage. Then I did this field work over more than a decade, and as you know, um, maybe might have been expected, although I don't think I did expect it. Uh, many of the relationships started to fall apart, and that then became another interesting sphere for um, for analysis. Um, uh, you know, to better understand what. Uh, what was driving these relationships apart, what were the fault lines, uh, and how then were women coping post-divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, the, 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 the upward mobility of matrifocality that I witnessed and that I think is um, an important social phenomenon today does help to redefine whiteness uh, I don't think people are thinking of it in those terms, um, but I do think when I witnessed this, especially among white Barbadian women, uh, I think, again, it pointed me, it pointed out for me how little explored are the lives of, of white, white folks in general and white women in particular. It is a really fascinating sociological phenomenon that in a wonderful way illustrates that um, that you know, white women are, are part of the social fabric, and they they have embraced, understood, been socialized with within, and inculcated uh, the same set of cultural values. And so, it shouldn't be as surprising to us as it is that that these women find themselves in in um, situations of divorce and very ably running their own households. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you talk a lot about the importance of affective work and I found this really interesting as a way to think about what you're what you were looking at. And I guess I was one of the things that I was thinking about in terms of that is the this notion of affective work in the context of the Caribbean, in the context of what's increasingly become a service industry, is actually mm-hmm. a reaction to years and years, as you point out, centuries really, of work that involved really the suppression of affect work that was all about um, you have a, you have a wonderful phrase in your book. I'm, I can't recall it right now, but work that was all about just shut up and do as you're told. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the, in this way, again, this kind of neoliberal friendliness um, takes on this completely Caribbean cast. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, again, this is where history is really critical. I mean, this is an Island that, you know, whose history is steeped in plantation slavery, where, uh, especially for house slaves, uh, a high degree of dissembling was just uh, the order of the day. And so there is a local saying that says, all skin teeth ain't a smile. In other words, all upturned um, mouths are not indication of happiness, joy, and pleasure. 
you know, we may look like we're smiling, but we may be gritting our teeth and bearing it, right? Um, and so on the one hand, there's a long historical tradition of the need for dissembling and and um, putting on a mask, so to speak. Uh, sugar then gave way to tourism as the primary anchor of the economy. And what what industry more demands affective labor than the tourism business, right? And, and in fact, the, the National um, Tourism Board mounted an ad campaign, I remember, in the early days of my field work in the, in the, uh, in the late 80s that said, um, uh, tourism is our business, let's do our part. And it was all about the smile. Um, no matter what's behind the smile, we have to be welcoming and, uh, and, and be um, gracious. Uh, what's interesting is that the kind of affective labor in services that I'm describing, and even in conventional kind of um, production businesses that some of the entrepreneurs were running with in, in relation to their customers and clients. Uh, so I'm not talking about only the kind of intensive affective labor one would find in um, a salon or a, a uh, somebody performing massage or something very bodily and very tactile and very intimate in exchange. Um, maybe somebody running a wine bar or another, you know, um, food service or a summer camp for children or something that obviously requires a high degree of, of um, emotional labor. But it could also be, you know, just the manufacture of a, of a particular good uh, and dealing with clients. Now, the demand is for a higher level of familiarity, knowledge, memory, relatedness, uh, and care that I think was, has not always been the case. So there are both the seeds of uh, many of the tools that are, are being um, required in these new businesses, but they're also ta- they're, they're heightened in new kinds of ways, and they're they're demanding and inviting. It's this it's this dual thing where it's both pleasurable and a demand. Uh, uh, kind of the marshalling of emotional reservoirs that are are challenging and and I think that not everyone necessarily has the tools to identify and uh, and so therefore it does it requires work to cultivate them yeah you point out that um, this is all you use the words you you use words in conjunction like desired coerced and enacted and I think mm-hmm. that, that that gets at really the complexity of what you're trying to do and it also gets at the real way that all of these things become entangled more and more mm-hmm. and in particular, with child rearing, and then later on, I also want to talk about the final chapter with the services of the self. But with child rearing, that's really clear. So that you have these, um, you have the the emergence of all of these camps and right. and and nannies and all of this kind of thing that are part of the expectation to nurture children, but also right. part of the expectation that you need to kind of actually outsource that nurturing a little bit if you're going to get your work done. <laughs> Right. And so this right. uh, way in which it makes space for the for the entrepreneurial efforts that support the goal of entrepreneurialism as well as allowing work, women to work harder at their own small businesses and it really just becomes so entangled. It does. It does. And this is this is one of the things that I find so fascinating is that on the one hand so the the child rearing piece I think is really fascinating. I could have written a whole book about just that mm-hmm. because uh 
you know, very firm discipline is something that the region at large is renowned for, um, for better or worse. Um, you know, the, the, the notion that, um, you don't want to spoil a child. Uh, and so harsh discipline, corporal punishment, it has historically just been an expected element of child rearing. And there has long been the notion that the whole community raises children. And so if you're on the street or you're on a bus with a child who misbehaves or does something, and it's expected that the, or historically it would have been expected that any adult in, in proximity to that child could give them, you know, a, a, a strong lash as, mm. as they would refer to it. Um, at almost every Barbadian I know was, you know, beaten as a child by their parents, by a school, by, by teachers, by a headmaster. Mm. It was just, um, an, an element of, of childhood that that's how, uh, order, discipline, manners were cultivated. Uh, I mentioned in the book, I think it's a fascinating aside. There's this BBC series called the world's strictest parents. And, um, it's worth yeah. checking out if you've never seen it. But Barbados was featured as one of the, the you know, the sites in which to identify some of the world's strictest parents. Yeah. And they send a couple of unruly British teenagers who have gotten themselves into trouble to yeah. be kind of brought in line by. And this this was just a couple of years ago. <laughs> so uh, so that that reputation is, you know, is is um, a very um, well-known one. What was fascinating is to see. All of these, again, kind of familiar American style summer camps, way, you know, venues for cultivating extracurricular activities for children, languages, things that involve the sea, right? Mm -hmm. Tourists love to go to a place like Barbados. It's this wonderful tourist destination in large part because of the sea and the sand. But, um, uh, again, looking historically, many Barbadians until, you know, uh, this past generation, didn't swim. People would go for a sea bath. They would bathe. They would go up to their waist and enjoy the sea and its medicinal qualities and have a good laugh and be in the early mornings. You can go down to virtually any beach and see old people uh, in a circle having a big laugh and enjoying each other's company and floating in the sea. But most people wouldn't swim way out, you know, mm -hmm. uh, at a distance in large part, as the expression goes, the sea doesn't have a back door, you know, and people would regularly drown. Mm -hmm. So the idea that young young black Barbadian children, for example, are going to summer camps and learning how to sail or learning how um, to kayak, these were activities that were the preserve of the tourist or the white middle class uh, or elite Barbadian. And uh, and so that that was a really wonderful and interesting phenomenon to witness kids going to art camps and uh, other kinds of after-school activities was something very, very new. Mm. Um, but again, as you point out, uh, what is this also evidence of? It's evidence of the growth of a whole new sphere of businesses, right? People are, are opening summer camps. They're opening after-school activities, and they're opening businesses for shuttling children from schools to these after-school activities because there's now this giant tangle of traffic. And uh, so you can see this um, self-reinforcing um, circuit of activity where people are working longer hours, they're stressed, they have demands, they need to buy other people's services to help out with raising their children or prepare food for dinner or run a birthday party. And all of those things become 
understood as necessary ways of marking one's middle class status. And then that gives rise to new enterprise to meet those middle class needs. And then, you know, it, it, it becomes either a wonderful or a vicious cycle, depending on how you view it. Yeah, and that's really visible in the final chapter where you talk about the kind of services of the self, right? The spas and the restaurants and the galleries, right. but also the churches, which was a mm-hmm. really interesting aspect of this kind of new mode of, of sort of fashioning the self. Right, right. Yeah, I found that really fascinating. Again, you know, in the same way that I didn't envision uh, delving into the affective realm, I certainly didn't imagine spending much of my fieldwork time uh, studying um, entrepreneurs in churches. And again, when you do ethnography, you kind of follow your subjects. And I ended up finding myself in a whole array of new kinds of spiritual communities. Uh, not all of them were recognizable churches per se. Uh, many of them were offshoots of uh, the Anglican Church or the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church or uh, or something in between. There were living room churches and there were, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, very alternative, almost new age seeming uh, communities uh, and um, congregations being formed with very different expectations for participation that in a way you know, I relate this to the reputation respectability paradigm where, you know, the, the mainline churches of, of the Anglican church or the Methodist church or the Catholic church, which were, you know, very strong uh, and historically important institutions uh, uh, in Barbados, um, they're known for their hierarchy. They're, they're again, like marriage, they're, those are upheld as the signature markers of respectability as the as the arbiters of, of respectability that's where the moral codes and ethics are are upheld for the society and um, most understood to be allied with British colonial tradition and so to see um, and I had a fascinating interview with an Anglican um, priest about this who was understandably utterly dismayed by the burgeoning um, presence of some of these alternative churches in which music and very high-end PowerPoint displays and uh, very charismatic um, preachers and uh, ministers and leaders uh, where, you know, the participation of the congregation played a much greater role than the more formal hierarchical structures of the mainline um, churches. So, Again, I think there was a, a, a an echo of the kinds of desires, the kinds of relatedness, the kinds of intimacy, the kinds of experience to, and desires to cultivate the self were being expressed and uh, and sought out in these spheres. And um, and um, it was a it, again, it was an unexpected but profound element for a lot of these entrepreneurs. Yeah. So I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to ask you just one maybe final question or one final comment. Um, Mm -hmm. So I can't decide whether what you're describing is sinister or or whether it's evidence of kind of an endurance and resilience of this small island and its (laughs) culture. But, you know, I think that that's its strength, right? There's a complexity and a real double-edged nature 
so that it gets at what you call a structure of feeling. And I can imagine sort of debating this with students and colleagues for a long time, as I have uh, other uh, other um, arguments that you've made in in, in prior um, prior work. So I just wanted to hear you comment on that. Uh, I, am I right in thinking that that it's really hard to tell whether this is a, a sinister thing or a or mm-hmm. a kind of hopeful yeah. <laughs> development? I, yeah, it is right. It's absolutely right. And I think uh, this is funny that it's your final question because I, I remember this with my first book, and and it's now happening again. Uh, this question always comes up at the very end of every discussion, you know, in the final analysis is, you know, were, were the, the outsourcing of, of informatics industries, was that fundamentally exploitative of the Barbadian um, workforce or it was this liberatory or in the entrepreneurial case, uh, is the rise of this kind of neoliberal culture uh, uh, and, and, you know, especially the marshalling of and, and intensification of affective labor, is that fundamentally sinister and and super exploitative, or is it something else? And uh, you are right; it, it's it's all of the above, and and the, it's precisely the entanglement of the 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 um, constraining, confining, oppressive, burdensome. And as well as pleasurable, liberatory, expressive, creative, all of those things, it's the entanglement of them that I think makes them perhaps both insidious and also full of possibility. Uh, I think, you know, it's, uh, I, 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 for me, I, those things need to be held together. I, I don't, I don't think it's possible or, um, necessarily advantageous to arrive on one or the other side of that. I, I don't, I think that's not true to, to lives as they're being lived. Thanks so much. You've given me a lot to think about. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronschman, and I hope you can join me next time.